1: Hello, this is Australian Politics Life, and I'm Laura Murphy-Oates. We do have a special crossover episode today between our news podcast Full Story and this one. I'll be talking to Murph and doing a bit of an overview of the insanity of the past few weeks and taking a look at just how much our political landscape has changed. Uh, but we'll also be looking ahead to try and imagine what our politics and what our society will look like when the coronavirus crisis is all over. Okay, Murph. It's been an enormous few weeks. Welcome back
0: to the pod. Um, <laughs> what has been I'm, I'm amazed Sorry. we've been able to get back to the pod, Laura. This is incredible. Yes. Let's let's We're just give ourselves up. a moment to pat ourselves on the back for getting back to the pod. Yes. Anyway, pat pat pat. Um, on we
1: go. For you seeing this crazy couple of weeks, what has been the biggest change in this
0: government? What have you been surprised by? It's been fascinating in this sense. The government has sort of transformed its identity almost entirely in a matter of weeks. Uh, We've gone from a government that was literally so obsessed with trying to deliver a surplus in line with its election commitments and other things that it was chasing uh, robo-debts from (laughs) from people, uh, and they didn't even stop long enough to check whether the mechanism they were using is lawful. So they were so keen on trying to land that surplus, so embedded in that idea, to uh, racking up one of the biggest debt and deficits that we have seen, certainly in my reporting lifetime. The striking thing about it is there has been very little anxiety about this shape shift. They've just gone from one identity to the other as as events demand and uh, without sitting around angsting about it, which has been interesting. Perhaps you can think about some Liberal prime ministers uh, in all of our lifetime that may have struggled with this a bit. Like I can't imagine, for example, Tony Abbott (laughs) going from one identity to the other without some angst or without some struggle, but Scott Morrison has done it. Uh, He's a very pragmatic politician at the end of the day. I don't think ideology is what motivates him. I think he's very interested in the mechanics of politics and power. So in a way, uh, the transformation perhaps has been easier for him than it would be for a more ideological liberal prime minister. I just want to get into,
1: I suppose, how much money has been given out just in the past (laughs) month from this government. Can you step us through the, the the types of announcements that we've seen i
0: absolutely can and just before i do that i'd just say it is it is really disorienting these billions start to flow into other billions and you you can't quite work out where you are and which billion uh, and is you, it this week basically which billion <laughs> is it this week and it, and it's a big the sort of measure of the day is sort of whether or not we've spent 100 billion uh anyway which is kind of remarkable in itself so, look, there have been three stimulus packages, although the government would query with my terminology there. They would say the first one was a stimulus package and the next two were safety net or survival packages. Mm-hmm. Now, the first one, the number one, the kick kickoff, uh, was $17.6 It's a very substantial package, $17.6 billion, but it's really front-loaded, $11 billion of which will go. Uh, And that was a whole lot of stimulatory measures like... 750 bucks to hit the shops, uh, support for small businesses to invest, all of that sort of stuff. Uh, It was pretty obvious from the moment that that was unveiled, that that wouldn't be enough. And so it was because the government appeared, uh, I'm not even sure if it was a week later, 10 days later, something in that order. Today, the government is announcing a second package $66 billion to cushion the blow to households as a result of the coronavirus. Uh, With uh, another $66 billion. Uh, And again, that seemed pretty massive at the time that 66 billion would now be on the table but then we had to get to that scene in Crocodile Dundee that everybody will remember uh, and if you're not old enough to have seen the film you will you will have totally seen this as a meme I'm sorry, on social media <laughs> daz trust me laura you're going to know this that's <laughs> not a knife this is a knife Right, everybody knows that scene. I only so, know it from the uh, Simpsons remake, actually. But that's ex- well, no, no ex- exactly. Well, this is why we talk, does? It's like you can explain youth to me, and I can explain old people's <laughs> stuff to you. I'll talk about knifey spoony. You talk about that's not a knife. Well, <laughs> and what a knife it was! Today, I announce that we are committing hundred and thirty billion dollars over the next six months to support the jobs and livelihoods uh this uh this is the 130 billion dollars that the prime minister slapped down the other day for uh wage subsidies this is for people who uh, are stood down because of the economic shock associated with the coronavirus, uh, they get a flat payment, um, fortnightly payment, basically, provided their employer qualifies. Now, uh, I, I know we, we this is a family show, so we need to be a little bit careful about what we dump on the listeners. But I myself, when $130 billion came out of the Prime Minister's mouth, I flinched, like I physically flinched. i, I I've never stood in the courtyard and had a prime minister spend a hundred and thirty billion dollars in six months before, but the reporter standing next to me whom I won't name said a very audible swear word uh, <laughs> at the at when the shall I shall I say the swear word can you give us a sense yeah it started in F ended in K and okay. uh, and it was entirely involuntary entirely like he didn't mean to launch an expletive in the middle of the courtyard, but it really was quite something. Can you put that
1: into perspective a little bit for us? Like, how extraordinary is it to announce this type of spending in such a short period of time? Uh, well, I,
0: I have never, I've not seen this before. Obviously, I was reporting during the global financial crisis and there were stimulus packages launched during uh, that crisis. But this absolutely dwarfs that in terms of the scale of it. And it dwarfs it uh, not because the government's being profligate, not because the government's sort of, with the zeal of the convert, has now just decided to empty the Commonwealth coffers. It's because of the nature of this crisis. Now, I reckon we'll get into talking about that in a bit, but I'm just foregrounding that. It's because this crisis has some very particular dynamics that warrant this level of spending.
1: How much does this spending compare to, say, you know what we might put forward in a budget, what we might spend usually in six months, if you can give us a sense of that?
0: Yeah, sure. Well, the, look, the wages subsidy, let's just take that one. The wages subsidy, so that $130 billion over six months, uh, is bigger than the education and health budgets for a year combined. So... Mm. It's it it is massive. It's it's hard to conce- for people to conceptualise billions because it's sort of obviously none of us are going down to the Seven Eleven and laying down a billion dollars any day of the week. So it's a bit hard to kind of focus on how big a billion dollars is, let alone 130 billion. But yeah, basically mm. the wages subsidy program six months is bigger than the health budget and the education budget for 12 months in this country. So this is a massive shift, especially
1: from a government where we saw radically different messaging on welfare, radically different messaging on stimulus after, you know, we've had a bit of a sluggish economy for such a long time. Can you step us through that transformation? Like what types of pressures are we seeing to to make this happen?
0: Well, it's sort of quite fascinating. If you're a deep nerd as I am, uh, you know, it's sort of one of the more interesting debates of the last sort of half of last year was this open dialogue that was happening between the Reserve Bank and the government. Uh, this is pre-pandemic, right? Like, just all of us. Let's just jump back six months. So this is before COVID. This is this debate was happening. The, Re- the Reserve Bank clearly wanted Scott Morrison and Josh Friedenberg to launch a modest fiscal stimulus package. Because if you can remember that far back, if your mind goes back six months, you'll remember that the economy, the Australian economy, uh, was going okay, but there were a lot of weak indicators. And the bank, sitting on the sideline, had launched a number of interest rate cuts over quite a long period of time to try and stimulate the economy. And what happened last year was the Reserve Bank governor basically said to the, the government publicly on several occasions. Look, guys, we have exhausted the, 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 the capacity of monetary policy, and by that, that's interest rate cuts. We've exhausted the capacity of that to stimulate the economy. We need you guys to step up. We need you guys to do a bit of pump priming in the economy.
1: But we should not rely on monetary policy alone. We will achieve better outcomes for the society as a whole if the various arms of public policy are all pointing in the same direction. The government is
0: doing more. Now, throughout that period, uh, Scott Morrison and and Frydenberg were were quite imperious, really. They said very often, look, uh, thanks for your input, fascinating, Um, but we don't think that's necessary. You know, guys, just chill. We've got this, right? So you could concur from that, that the government really didn't want to uh, launch stimulus at all. And in fact... Not only did they not want to do it, they revved up all the rhetoric about how crazy destructive the Labor Party was during the global financial crisis, right? Mm. The Labor Party stimulated the economy during the GFC. The government characterised all that as, as being you know, panicking, being over the top, uh, and you know had consigned the budget to sort of a generation of debt and deficit, and, and only stupid people did things like that, right? Then, whoosh. In comes the pandemic. Scott Morrison clings for a week or so to the idea that uh, only small things will be needed; it'll be okay. The penny drops for him at some point. This is not going to be okay. In fact, this is going to be diabolical. Then, basically, it's uh, you know, it's like that scene. I, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, <laughs> this is the last old person's reference I'll give you, Laura. <laughs> I, I just happened to be watching it the other night. Die Hard Two where Jeremy Irons drops through the vault through, you know, they're in the New York Reserve Bank or something. They drop through the vault handily with these massive drills. I don't know how you get them down a street in New York, but anyway, fortunately they they came in with these massive drills and just basically dynamited the lot. Now it came the gold. Well, that's basically what's happened really uh, over the last three weeks in politics.
1: I feel like that's a reference that crosses the divide. That's that's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> Die hard's okay.
0: Crocodile Dundee, yeah. no. That's just embarrassing. Mum, go Die home, hard lock in, lock yourself up. Just <laughs> never come out again. <laughs> okay,
1: so we've seen just this radical change. How are they selling it? What type of messaging have we seen from the government to um, paper over this big shift?
0: I'd say a couple of things about that. One is that someone, a senior person in a state government said to me through the week, everybody's kind of put the political guns down for this period in time. Everyone has just dialed it down, right? So instead of characterising your political opponents as you know, bedwetters or panickers or, or whatever else, the political class by and large since the pandemic hit have just really tried to tone down the politics and that has enabled the government to sort of make this radical shape shift without everybody kind of just freaking out about that it is quite disconcerting obviously in life right if if somebody is uh, you, you think somebody is a particular type of person and then all of a sudden They demonstrate to you that they are not that type of person. Psychologically, that can be a very disorienting experience for people. And so it is with governments, right? But look, I think the government's been assisted by the fact that the case is just obvious and urgent. And I think the Australian community in a little while will start to be worried about how the hell we're going to pay for all of this. Like that will happen. That will definitely happen. But right now, I think the Australian community just wants to get through this very serious public health crisis, you know, as as best as we can. We have seen Scott
1: Morrison try to calm those fears, especially around jobs with this messaging of he's going to save lives and livelihoods. Do you think some of that messaging has been effective to calm the population?
0: Well, I think it's it's run a funny kind of curve, hasn't it, this whole experience. There was sort of a race at the start, I think, once people sort of tweaked to how serious this was. Lots of people in the community were shouting, lock everything down, lock it all down, lock everything down now, right? And Scott Morrison, entirely reasonably, in my view, has been saying all along, well, yes, we do need to do that. But we need to be cognizant of the impact of that. This is we we are dealing with saving lives, but we in order to save lives, we also have to give people a means of sustaining themselves, right, through this crisis. So, There's been this debate between the health measures and the economic measures all the way through. I mean, that's been quite a fascinating conversation. So yeah, Morrison's trying to frame this, and, and I think correctly, as in realistically, as in this is what's actually going on. We've got to do a bunch of public health stuff, but we've also got to keep workers connected to their jobs wherever possible. Because what the literature shows us about economic downturns, about recessions in Australia, That there are a bunch of people who lose their jobs in a recession, in a big downturn, and those people never get a job again. There are swathes of people, you know, let's just pick a cohort, let's just say blokes over 55 in in blue-collar manual jobs... What the previous recessions have shown us is that those, if those people lose their jobs, they are never employed again. So I think actually to give the Prime Minister some credit, he's been kind of grappling with that right from the get-go. And that might have resulted in the, in the government being a bit slow on some of the health stuff, but this is an entirely valid dialogue that, that, that Morrison mm. is trying to have.
1: On a policy level... How has this economic policy at least differed from other governments around the world? Would you say that we have been more progressive? have we been in the centre? Where would you put us?
0: Uh, well I think this is very much um, this is very much a treasury an Australian treasury response to an Australian recession uh, and by that there has been an eye to equity genuinely there has been an eye to fairness so there's a sort of a, there is an underlying australian ethos associated with these measures and uh, just one little anecdote the government with the wages subsidy for example they tossed that around in their head for quite a long time before they announced it because uh, people will know boris johnson for example just came out with a wages subsidy quite quickly but in Australia, Morrison and Frydenberg and the Treasury chewed that concept over a lot. And the reason they chewed it over a lot was that they wanted to produce a policy that was fair. And by that, this is what I mean, right? The government didn't want to be in a, in a situation where people on high incomes, so workers who earn a lot, uh, got a higher safety net, a better, more generous safety net than a kid working in a cafe, Right? That did not seem fair to the Treasury or to the government. So they were trying to work out how to give a wages subsidy that would sort of be consistent with the Australian idea of being fair. And that means that rich people don't get more help than poor people if you're talking about a safety net right? So there's, there's those kind of elements that have informed their thinking. It's going to take us a little while though, I think, to judge how effective this stimulus, these various waves of stimulus have, have been. Right now, everyone's just falling over each other to try and get it. And a lot of the money doesn't flow until April or May. So uh, we can't really make informed judgments right now about whether these are good initiatives or not. We're going to need a couple of months really to do that. But that's the thinking behind it.
1: Right. And surely there's only so much money the government can throw at this problem. Like how many more billions can we <laughs> announce
0: going forward? Well, I think we, uh, does. I think we're going to find out. Uh, I think we are going to find out. Obviously, the government has to have an eye to being able to afford on the other side of this crisis to run a health system, to run an education system, to build roads, to build all those things. So the government just cannot like clean out the entire, yeah, or, well, it's not a matter of cleaning out because obviously governments can borrow and they can raise as much money as they need. And and if they run out of money, they can go to the IMF and ask the IMF for the money. But the thinking is like how, let me put it this, there's all these trade-offs, right? In this pandemic, there's all kinds of trade-offs. It's sort of like you know, if you're in a philosophy class, you'd be talking about utilitarianism. you'd be you'd be talking about the greatest good for the greatest many, right? So the government's got to try and make way up, okay, we spend this now to save lives and livelihoods. we We don't worry about what the the dollar amount is. We just worry about achieving the policy objective. But at a certain amount of time, governments, ours, all governments around the world are going to have moments where they pause, where they pause quite significantly and they think, okay, We've got to not only deal with this crisis, but we've got to deal with the reconstruction effort afterwards, which will be considerable. And also we've got to return to something like normal functioning in an economy and in a government. So, you know, all of those things will be weighing on their minds, the government, as this this pandemic plays out, because we're looking at a long haul here. We're looking, you know, the government keeps talking about six months. I think realistically it's more like 18 months or two years. I mean, is the idea we had this government so focused
1: on the idea of a surplus, I assume that's in the rear window out the back.
0: <laughs> that's long does, gone. giles maybe your grandchildren will see a surplus, possibly, don't know, hard to know who will actually ever see a surplus in their lifetime. I'm pretty confident I won't, pretty confident I will not see the budget back in surplus in my lifetime unless... On the other side of this terrible event, the economies of the world roar back with so much dynamism and so much um, pent-up demand that the fiscal outlook is not as terrible as it looks right now. But right now, the fiscal outlook is it, this is this is a very long proposition for budget repair, a very very long
1: haul. Money aside and surplus aside, what a lot of people have been talking about is Morrison's communication strategy over the past couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. You've been writing a bit about these late-night press conferences. You've been there.
0: (laughs) What are your observations Mm. from being Mm. in the room? What have Mm. you seen? Oh, God. Well, we can keep this one very simple. Don't have a late-night press conference. (laughs) That's like that's pretty – and, look, I'm not just saying this because I'm, you know, on the 16th hour of my working day and I really need to lie down. I'm saying this because uh, on a couple of these occasions the Prime Minister has looked so exhausted like just so physically spent that he is not really projecting the level of steadiness and confidence that, that is necessary in a crisis like this.
1: Was there a moment in a
0: press conference where that became particularly clear to you? Well, I think a couple of them, uh, the late-nighters, he's he's arrived in a rush. He's just run out of National Cabinet with the agreed list He's read a list, you know, like a shopping list. Uh, you know, peas. We need peas and ice cream, and you know, and two ten beauticians and thirty-eight. You know, kind of. Uh, and it's uh, you know, boot camp. Yes, if it's ten. Not if it's forty. Yeah, you know, all this sort of stuff, right? Community and recreation centres, health clubs, fitness centres, yoga. Uh, you know, and a dialogue about, or or a or a soliloquy about, you know, barre. Bar I hope I've pronounced that. Correct, I might need some help with that. Um, I'm not quite sure what that is, to be honest, but um, B A R R E for those who are looking for the uh, specific definition and spin facilities. You know, it's bar, mate, bar, but you know what bar A is, right? <laughs> I mean, he doesn't, he hasn't needed to do that. Now, he can just sort of, well, determine what he's going to say go to bed, wake up the next morning, appear slightly refreshed after his, I don't know, four hours sleep that the guy's probably getting at the moment, and communicate those things a bit more clearly rather than uh, be or give this appearance of uh, everything just being a bit of a muddle. And I think they know that really. I think they are sort of slowly self-correcting on that. Obviously, behind
1: the scenes, we're seeing something new play out in terms of a whole bunch of health experts and authorities meeting, um, and then the prime minister meeting with this new national cabinet, um, trying to make all of these big level decisions quite quickly. Do you think that that structure is working well at the moment? There's been some fractious situations.
0: Yeah. Yeah. They certainly have. Um, Look, and and it is kind of scary in a way, like from a sort of governance, um, civil rights, accountability um, standpoint, that literally the governance structures for managing this crisis, the nine governments of Australia are basically making up as they go, right? Uh, But anyway, and I've ridden a bit of a, a curve with it myself. At first I thought, oh, this is crazy and it can't hold together because the tiers of governments want and need different things. And they're basically, there've been some very big fights inside, well, not fights as in ding-dong battles, but real deliberative differences of opinion, right, that the states have had to resolve with the Commonwealth. And I thought for probably a few days, oh, this is just one, stupid, and two, won't hold. But it has held, and I think... On balance, my view about it, even though uh, these governments are doing deeply scary things like not having parliament sits, creating public health directives that allow police enormous intrusion into the ordinary lives of people, things that we need to be very attentive to, right, governments are doing here. But on balance, I think that National Cabinet structure is has been a really helpful thing in Australia because what it's done is forced the really key debates about this crisis, which, and the key debate is really the health measures versus the economic impact of the health measures, right? That's the key debate. That's the core of it. And this structure has forced that debate out into a into a semi-public space. Right. Because we've seen Daniel Andrews
1: and Scott Morrison come out with slightly different interpretations of what's going on in this meeting, very different messaging On lockdowns.
0: Yeah, so I never thought I would say this, but the Federation has saved us in a way. It's like uh, if we were at this point, like New Zealand, although I've got no particular criticism of what's happening elsewhere, in those models, in those models of government, of course, there's no states, there's just national leaders who make various diktats, right? They come out and say, this is what's happening you don't get the debate that we've seen in Australia play out because of the tears of government, right? And I think actually it's important for citizens to understand these debates, to allow these debates to proceed and to uh, to sort of, I suppose, have the ambition for political leaders to be able to work these things out and strike balances between these two imperatives when when warranted. Okay. So Murph,
1: We have spoken in the past, uh, not that long ago, but it seems very long ago, about how Morrison handled (laughs) the bushfire crisis this summer. There was a lot of criticism of his leadership style. Do you think that he has learned from that? How is he managing this crisis in comparison to the last one? Well. Yeah,
0: it's well, it's an interesting question and had, could have a slightly nuanced answer. But look, in a, in a general sense, Morrison, throughout this crisis, the pandemic crisis, has really been trying, falling over himself, literally, um, trying not to screw up. And let's face it, the bushfires was a monumental screw up. And so in this crisis, he has been moving heaven and earth to try and not screw up substantively, and also to project the idea that he is not screwing up. Now, Scott Morrison is never going to sort of, uh, you know, have a deep, true confession with the Australian people. Gather round, boys and girls. Uh, I'm Scott Morrison. I was an idiot, but now I'm not. That is never going to happen because of the nature of the beast. But implicitly, that's what he's doing with this crisis. He is trying to project to the Australian people, know. I know I screwed up on the bushfires. I know I did a bad job i'm I'm trying very hard not to do a bad job here, so that's very important. But then there's just one nuance point I'd flag, Laura, just a quick one. Um, so in in general terms, he's doing better, obviously than the bushfires. But the measure of how better he's doing can be a little bit shaded, right? If you come at this issue from a health perspective, if health is the only thing you worry about, right, I don't care what happens to the economy, I only care about health. I only care about reducing the body count then there are there, and there is criticism around still that the commonwealth has moved too slowly on some of these health measures and has had to be dragged there by the states that criticism is around but if you look at the debate more holistically if you if you feel as I confess I do that there are that there is both a public health dimension to this and an economic one you're probably less inclined to criticise Morrison for that, but I just want to be clear for for listeners: there is criticism. Certainly, if you look just through the health lens, that this guy has, you know, been a, a week late and a, and a bob short. I suppose with these radical policy shifts comes
1: changes in how in our expectations of the government and how society feels about how we should be governed. Do you think that this government is going to be able to revert back to? their old way of of doing business in 6 months to a year is that yeah. possible to go back to the yeah. ideology that we uh, had
0: yeah i don't know what exists on the other side of this i really don't uh, we know that a big economic shock creates a very significant political realignment on the other side we saw that during the depression in in the in the 20s 30s and 40s we saw it again uh, after the global financial crisis, which which triggered a, a massive political realignment around the world, it, it sort of triggered the rise of populism. It uh, it enabled the return of the far right in Europe, and God help them. You know, the American people elected Donald Trump. So uh, things like that do have uh, massive political and societal consequences. Um, I sort of, uh, you know, in the in the two seconds of reflection I have every day, I do think about that a lot. I do think about how we're going to wash up on the other side of this. And it sort of depends, I think, whether I'm feeling pessimistic in that moment or whether I'm feeling optimistic where I land with that. Um, because there's a lot of pessimism around, I'm actually going to just put that in a drawer and not even talk about it. Let's just talk about the optimistic scenario. The optimistic scenario, I think, out of this, if, if these people, and by this I mean the political class, if they can just bear not to be dickheads, if they can just basically manage this crisis, come out the other side with the same sort of public, civic motivation that they are demonstrating now, we do have a genuine opportunity I think to reconnect parliaments to their citizens, uh, to rebuild trust in institutions and in politics, and to I suppose make the case for government. We've spent, you know, like we've spent several decades basically, uh, you know, in the in the in the economic orthodoxy that existed before the global financial crisis, limiting the powers of government transferring those powers to the market. So governments find themselves at the moment with only limited power and with a trust problem because of the way that governments around the world have conducted themselves in recent decades, right? So this would be my plea as citizen to politicians. Please don't be dickheads. Please understand that at the end of this dreadful crisis, that there is an opportunity to rebuild the entire structure that they work in, and to reconnect with communities in meaningful ways. I really hope they'll take that opportunity. So, Murph, before we let you go, this
1: is the last time we're going to see you on the pod for a little bit. Um, what's going on?
0: <laughs> well, hopefully not COVID nineteen. Let's touch wood. Hopefully not that. No, I'm uh, I'm just departing uh, the uh, the office for a couple of weeks or a few weeks. To work on another project, I'm doing a quarterly essay uh, that will deal with some of these life and times that'll be out later in the year. Uh, so you can watch out for that in due course. While I'm away in this stint, the lovely Malcolm Farr, who I know many listeners will be familiar with if you watch Insiders or your political tragics, you'll know exactly who Malcolm is. Malcolm's coming in for a few weeks to mind the Canberra shop and you might hear a bit from him over the next little bit.
1: Awesome Murph Senior. Thank you so much. Uh, oh, it's always a pleasure, Junior. One more note before we finish. Australian Politics Live is not going anywhere while Murph is away. It may sound a little different, but it will be in your feed from time to time. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Ellen Lee Beater, Hannah Izzard, and Gabrielle Jackson. The executive producer is Miles Martinioni. Be well and don't forget to wash your hands. A third of students are less than happy about their university choice, new research by EY has revealed. The findings suggest that a digital rethink is essential to meet the expectations of students and staff. Universities can address this by putting the needs of the people they serve at the heart of their digital strategies. Learn more about the future of human-centered higher education at theguardian.com forward slash transforming higher education. This message was paid for by EY.